if you would like to discover something about the God in which Renee has been referring to in the person of his son Jesus, why don't you join us for our Alpha course, which is starting on Tuesday night. It's a seven-week Christianity Explained. Get to know God. Ask any question you like in a non-threatening environment. Starting this Tuesday night, you can pick up one of the invites. I know how it usually goes. You get to the very last minute, and then you kind of do the ask, and it might be too late. So if you want to do the ask this week, or if you're here this morning, you'd like to be involved in that, then you can connect in with that as well. Renee, thank you for what you shared. Um, isn't it good? Hard, but good. If you hear nothing else about what I want to say this morning in our time that we have remaining, I want to say this. God wants you to join him in changing his world for good. God wants you to join him in shaping his world for good. No matter where you are on the spectrum of sort of discovering something out about God, or maybe you've been journeying with Jesus for many, many years, I just want you to know this. God still wants to use you to join him is shaping his world for good. Just this last week, we had um, a catch-up with one of the federal ministers, Michael Sucker, for Deacon. And in that space, Jen Aiton and I, we sat with him, and uh, Jen did a presentation with, uh, on our Engage Sunday and made some flowers, representative of encouraging the federal government to give aid and financial aid to people overseas. And so we got to present that to him, and he received that, and we got to talk about kind of the different situation of the complexities about giving an Australian aid overseas. It was really valuable. I had a chance to actually talk to him about East Timor and say, you know, the oil thing in, in where you draw the median line between and, and the money that the Timorese are actually giving the Australian government as a result of it, he said, it's complex. <laughs> I said, I know. But let's remember our Timorese people as well. You see, we have a mission around here. We exist to make courageous followers of Jesus Christ. And our vision goes like this. We are building a growing community of vibrant Jesus followers, visibly impacting our spheres, shaping our city, and serving our world. And as we celebrate Jesus together, this month we've been talking about shaping our city. What does it mean for someone like you to shape the world that you are in, just where you are? And what does it mean beyond our borders as well? Shape your world. God wants you to join him in shaping his world for good. I want to take the story that we learnt, uh, the movie, We Bought a Zoo, and Renee's story kind of grouped them together and wrapped them around another story we've been unpacking over the last month. It's the story of Nehemiah. And it goes something like this. Nehemiah was a man who lived in 400 BC, a long way away away, in modern-day Iran, his people group, the Jewish people, had been isolated and exiled 1,200 kilometers away from Jerusalem. The Babylonians had deported them. And there they are in a foreign land, and he asks a question that unravels him in a deep, deep way. And the question goes something like this. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that's modern-day Jerusalem, that region, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He just asked a question. How's my family doing back in Jerusalem? And by the way, How's the city itself? And this was the reply. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. You see, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, that triggered off a whole series of reactions 
within Nehemiah's life. Not only was he concerned about his family, the well-being of his immediate family, but what got to him in his heart most of all was this sense of disgrace that, wait a second, the place where God is supposed to dwell, this this temple, this Jerusalem, this holy city is no longer reflecting him back into the world. When the other people see what he is like, they see the broken down gates, they see the broken down walls, they see the people in a rabble, when they see the people in a turmoil, he said that reflects upon how they view the God of heaven. My God, my creator, the one who made everything. When they look at that rubble, they'll think that God's not very good. That God's not very great. And so he was heartbroken. So what did he do? He went and he petitioned the king, King Artaxerxes, because we find out and discover that he is a cupbearer. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king, tastes the wine, picks the wine, but also has the ear of the most powerful man in the known world of the time. The kind of power that if he displeased the king, he would lose his life, but if he pleased him, he would be elevated along the way. And so here we have Nehemiah leveraging all of his resources, all of his opportunities, and he makes a big ask to the king. He says, what I'd like to do is go ahead and return to my homeland. And he prays for four months, just like Renee and Paul set aside some time in the midst of their tragedy to seek God and say, what would you have us do? He sought God for four months praying and fasting and repenting, saying, God, we are here in this place because we as a people, your people, have failed you. We as your people have failed to reflect you back into the world. We have not harnessed your mercy and justice and grace. And because of this, we have been judged and we're in a foreign land. So he he prays, God, don't forget us. Would you actually help me now to act and do something that is good and big for you? So he goes to the king and He's in a state of sadness, and the king asks him one day, why are you so sad? Nehemiah shoots up a prayer, and then king says, what do you want? And he says, what I want is I want to return to my own people. I want to build the gates. I want to reestablish the walls so that we'll have a place to dwell, so that the remnant will have a place to live, and that the God that I believe in might be able to shine forth. And it says this, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my requests. This is a big deal in Nehemiah's life because just 14 years before, the same king had rejected the same request. And so the king effectively changed his mind. And Nehemiah looks at this situation and he says, it's not just that I got the king on a good day. It's because I actually believe that the hand of God is with me. You see, God wants you to join him in shaping his world for good. And when I think we ask bold prayers like that, God can turn up in bold, mighty ways. That's exactly what Renee and Paul's experience was and has been. And so he returns with all of the privilege of authority and the timbers from the king's forest himself. And he returns to Jerusalem 1,200 kilometers away. And when he arrives, he doesn't just blurt out his idea. He, He sits and dwells for three days. And then in the evening time, he takes just a small group of people and he begins to survey the walls. And he's formulating a strategy in his head and his mind. He's not going to tackle the whole wall. He's going to tackle a section of it. What's doable? What's achievable? It's, what's a stretch? But, and, and these walls, they're huge stones. 
So he needs not only timbers, but huge amounts of manpower to be able to shift it and move these stones to, to form them into some place of semblance of a wall. But then on the third day, after he surveyed, he goes to them and he gathers the people and he casts a huge big vision. He said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. He gathers all the people together and he makes a pitch. He has in leadership terms a big, hairy, audacious goal. And he throws it out to them and says, we are in disgrace. This place that's supposed to be a sanctuary that actually reflects the very light and purpose of God back to the world is destroyed. We are in ruins. We are a rabble. But let us rebuild the wall and let's end this disgrace. And they're gathered. The people are mobilized. What happens along the way is that the people, they they hear this vision. They sense its power. But along the way, they, they gather together and they say, we will build the wall and we will end the disgrace. God wants you to join him in shaping his world for good. And then comes the opposition. You can bet your bottom dollar when anyone steps out for God, when anyone steps out anywhere and it affects change, that there will be opposition that will come your way. Have you ever experienced that yourself? In your own work life, in your own home, you've wanted to change something And even just the smallest amount of change can send a ripple through the family. My wife has had a vision for 13 years. She has had a vision of arranging our kitchen in such a way that the table does not go the lengthways of the kitchen, but the table, our long table, should go crossways to our vision, uh, to, to our kitchen. Yeah. And for 13 years, I have resisted that vision. So what has she discovered about opposition in recent times? Well, it just so happens we've been renovating some of the rooms of our house, painting them, redoing them. And whilst I was in East Timor with Fiona and Annie and Malia, she decided that she would exert some of her power and influence over our home and choose the colours for our house. So it started in the laundry, lime green. And then it moved to the pantry that we're getting done, blue, the colour of clouds. And then she moved to our toilet, the other toilet, and she painted it this brilliant, vibrant orange so that you cannot relax in that place. It is so bright. That's just to keep the whole process moving, right? And so whilst... I was away out the other day. She's just, I think that the, the, it's been sitting in her head and realizing this is how I actually get past any opposition. She waited until I was out of the house and she had some girlfriends come over. And when I came home, the kitchen table was rearranged. It was going across our room rather than lengthways. And everything had been done and she kind of sat there as though to go, oh, have you noticed any difference? I've noticed the kitchen table is this way. And after 13 years, she has learnt that when you are faced with opposition in your life, the best thing to do is wait until no one's watching and then go ahead and do it yourself. Well, I just want to say after 13 years of opposition, I actually think her idea is an okay kind of good one. And going across the room is kind of okay, maybe for another week or two or maybe even longer than that. But bet the bottom dollar, whenever you cast a vision in your life, 
Whenever you put it out there in a workspace or in a home or wherever it is, there will be opposition that will come your way. This was the same situation that happened in We Bought a Zoo. Here it is, a dad is trying to rebuild his life after the tragic loss of a wife. And his brother is against him. His son doesn't want to come with him. But he keeps on casting a vision. Because he believes that through it, there's a vision that will be accomplished, that will achieve something of goodness for their family. Whenever there's a vision, there's an opposition. So too with Nehemiah. But when Sanballat, one of the governors of Samaria north of Israel, and Tobiah, another governor of Ammon, to the east of Israel, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? trying to get under Nehemiah's skin and try to suggest that all we need to do is write a letter back to the king and tell him that you're building a wall so that you will actually then defy him and set up your own governance separate to him and the the ruthlessness of of your challenge to him will actually get to his ear and he'll come and he'll, he'll stop what you're doing. But he doesn't. What Nehemiah does along the way is he gathers the people and says, don't worry about what they're saying. We want to press on because the vision is important. And he writes this, Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep's gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of, uh, of the Hundred, which they dedicated in the Tower of Hananel. People from town of Jericho worked next to them. And beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. And he goes and explains all the different families and priests and, and groups of people. As they had proximity and ownership to the wall, that they began to put their arms to the work. And they began to build this wall. Halfway through the completion of the wall, there's a mocking. Sanballat, the governor who stands to lose most power and influence in their arena and in the area, he he gets angry. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they really think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices to their God? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Sanballat mocks Nehemiah, taunts them in front of all of the people. And what does Nehemiah do? He presses on. Hear us, O God, he prays. For we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. And may they themselves become captives in a foreign land themselves. God, what they are wishing for us, may you turn it back upon them. Because I have a vision that's stirred by you. And I want to press on. Finally, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, heard that the work was going ahead and the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, the opposition just increased one more. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into the confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. And then as they pressed on, We find that Nehemiah does something that only great leaders can do in rallying their people. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. They smelt. That would have been a stinky operation. 
we carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. You see, not only does Nehemiah do a big ask, not only does he cast a big vision, but he realizes and understands that if he is going to change anything in the world around about him, that he needs to embody the change himself. We, we put our arms to the walls. We didn't change our clothes. We carried our weapons. Trowel in one hand, weapon in the other. He organized the people so that together they were unified as one and began, if you like, to build a wall that was shaping their city and serving their world. Because in this place would be the place where God would dwell, where his light would shine forth, where the people would be gathered, and in his mercy and his grace and his justice would be accessible to all. My friends, if you want to shape our world, we need to embody the change ourselves. You see, it's so easy, isn't it, to see something that goes wrong and to point a finger and say, shouldn't someone do something about that? Shouldn't someone else go and intervene in that situation over there? Shouldn't someone else go and solve this particular problem? Shouldn't someone else go and make sure those people are behaving properly? Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't. Nehemiah understood that he was going to shape the world. He needed to embody the change himself. See, the power of this story of Nehemiah The power of this story is that he was prepared to make a difference in his world, wherever he was, right there, for God's good and for other people's benefit. You see, we learn of the story of Nehemiah that in 52 days, the walls were finished. In 52 days, the walls were finished and people were now in a place of refuge and safety. Hard fought, hard felt Backbreaking work in, in, in the sea and in, in, in vast array of opposition, he pressed through to achieve a goal that God had placed upon his heart. You see, Nehemiah was the kind of person that wouldn't point the figure and say it's everyone else's problem. Nehemiah was the kind of person who said, I want to embody the change myself. When I hear Renee and Paul's story, I get excited. This past month, Asking the question, shape your world. Do you want to shape your world? Do you want to shape your world? Because to shape your world around about you, we need to get uncomfortable. You see, when we see something on the television that we don't like, we can just flick it off. When we see something happening on the street that we don't like, we can just drive on past. When we see something happening around about us, we can just walk on by. But people who shape their world at some stage in their life get uncomfortable. Did you know that God can take some of your greatest pains and heartaches and turn them for good? I love what Renee said this morning. It's not as though her situation and Paul's situation hasn't changed their pain and suffering. But through the midst of that pain and suffering, as they sought God, he laid something else on their heart they had no idea about but is now shaping another part of the world because of it and their obedience along the way. 
Do you know that God can take some of your greatest heartaches in your world, greatest challenges, and work them for good, even when you can't always see? You see, we often think that the most difficult decisions in our lives, if God's in it, that it'll all happen smoothly and easily. Isn't that right? Surely if God's in this particular thing, there won't be any opposition, there won't be any hard work, there won't be any effort. No. The story of Nehemiah reminds ordinary folk like you and I is that sometimes when God taps us on the shoulder and actually calls us to follow him, he actually allows the discomfort to increase even through the opposition and the heartache and the cost because he wants to strengthen us for the task ahead. It's building that thing called resilience in our lives. Do you want to shape your world? Get uncomfortable. Begin with the end in mind. Think about what could be and allow God to dream dreams in you about what it could be to shape your world just where you are, right where you are. And then, along the way, embody the change. Don't just think it's for someone else to do. Look at it and ask, God, what do you want me to do about this? If you like, right where you are right now, it begins with a simple question. God, what breaks your heart? You see, someone who wants to shape their world kind of intuitively asks this question. God, what is it that breaks your heart? Or what is it that gets up your nose? Because usually it's the things that get up our nose or breaks our heart when we spend time with God that he's shaping and challenging in us. That's why I love the story of Michelle, Michelle Gates, Days for Girls. She had a heartbreaking experience where she said girls in third world countries should not miss out on education just because they have a menstrual period once a month, two weeks out, one week out of education from school. So I want to actually provide for them sanitary products so that they can stay in school and be educated. Something that got up her nose and broke her heart. And so over this last year, she's been developing that with a bunch of other folk from here. And she takes these packs over to East Timor and says, here, use these. I remember coming back from one of the gatherings where they explained in this kind of more precious East Timorese situation about what's appropriate to share and what's not. One of the girls stood on the corner of the street as I was driving the car past, holding up her sanitary pack, going, look at this. <laughs> I said, if you only knew, <laughs> which she did. What is it that breaks your heart? You see, people who shape their world, they kind of wake up in the morning time and they dare to pray a prayer, God, what is it that breaks your heart? And secondly, because the hardest thing to do is to take the first step, is that God asks in return of us. What's in your hand? God, I can't do something as great and brave as what Fiona Hamilton has done in going over to East Timor. I can't do something as noble and brave as Paul and Renee in their situation. But all I've got is what's in my hand right now. What do you want me to do with it? And, and, and people who want to shape their world around about, not only... Do they pray a prayer that goes, God, what is it that breaks your heart or gets up your nose? But God, I kind of feel like I'm not courageous. I'm stuck at home looking after the kids. What do you want me to do just to round about exactly where I am? 
And I think God whispers back to us, what do you got in your hands? Use them. I love the story. Just recently, Marcus, Marcus Baker, his primary school said, we want to raise some money for kids over in Africa so they can go to school. We're going to collect all the loose coins. So he came and they said, uh, why don't we gather loose coins with him? What's in his hands? Nothing much, a few coins. But when he asks it, what's in his hands now? A whole bag of money that he raises back. I love the story of Tim Reed. I love it how in the midst of some of his challenging situations with mind health that have radically changed the way he operates his, his world and his life, he says, you know what, God? What's in my hands is my experience. And what I want to do is offer something called Blur to a community who suffer from mental health issues. And I want to support them. What is it that breaks your heart? Well, it's actually broken mine. It's got up my nose. That's my experience. But now, God, I want to say, would you take what I've got for good? Or would you use it? Because it's a great thing. What's in your hands? The band's going to come up and they're going to play a reflective song in the moment. And I know I've gone on this morning. Because you can see I'm enthusiastic about the story of Nehemiah. Casting great big vision. And I want to say to you, some of you businessmen and women out there, you have amazing leverage. Amazing leverage. That if you could ask this question, God, what breaks your heart? That God might lay upon your heart that you might be able to go and petition your boss, your Arctic Xerxes in your life and say, how do you want me to respond? You might see something in your office space. that You go, you know what? This gets up my nose. This breaks my heart. What am I going to do? God, would you help me in the midst of this to know what you want me to do? Kids, if you're here today and you're at school and you're wondering, what is it that I can do to make a difference for God? My daughter, Bronte, came home about six weeks ago. Came home about six weeks ago and and she said, Dad, I, I went to school today and I smiled at someone. She said, I got a text message back from that girl later on that just said, Hey, Bronte, you have no idea. You have no idea how important that message of that smile was for me today. It actually changed the way my day was heading. Thank you. There's a song that's going to be playing right now. And as you hear the words of this, I want you to pause for a moment. You see, young people right here, you can shape your world in profound ways for God. Did you know that God wants you to join Him in shaping His world, your world, for good? And you can do it whether you're five years old or 105. It starts with a simple prayer. God, what breaks your heart in my school? What breaks your heart in my classroom? What breaks your heart in my workspace, in my community? What breaks your heart? And then God will whisper back to you, what's in your hand? Have you got a smile? Give it.
Have you got words to say? Say them. Have you got money to give? Give it. Have you got hard back-breaking work to do? Do it. Great things for God aren't accomplished by just sitting back with ease. It's believing that he'll answer. And when he answers, he invites you to be obedient to him. Why don't you use this space right now? You might just want to pray, close your eyes, reflect. You might want to just sing these words quietly, but just Cindy's going to sing them over. And if during that time you would like to receive some prayer, I'm going to have Ian and Bron. They're just going to be up here. If you'd like them to pray for you, then you just get out of your chair, come on up here, they'll pray, then you can head back. Otherwise, allow this space for God to speak to you.